Well, praise God. There they go. Amen. All enthusiastic. Love it. Uh, just want to say this is a t- terrific book to really go through, to really understand our own lives, to understand our own church, to understand, again, our own functionality. And last time we were together, we finished off chapter number four, and that was a, uh, an amazing chapter, wasn't it? Because, again, in the last paragraph, we're given a synopsis, again, of what the early church really looks like. You know, what were the uh, prominent features of it? And we've seen, again, some of the prominent features is that they had this overwhelming love of God that it caused them to love, again, everyone that happened to be in the congregation in tangible ways. And the key text that happens to be, again, of that last paragraph happened to be verse number 33, which is, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So here we see this great power. And the great power is through the message, isn't it? It's through an explanation of the word of God and then an application of that word of God, and in particularly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection, and all that that means to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, great grace fell upon the people. In other words, the favor of God that they did not deserve. And how do we see that favor of God? You know, that there was not a needy people that happened to be in that early congregation. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Because when you look at it, it's uh, basically thousands and thousands and thousands of of individuals that happen to be again there uh, that had no means of support. And here we have some people going out, they're selling their property, even selling their houses, so so that they could meet this physical need that happened to be again in the church. And we're even told of one individual who happened to be Joseph, but he's actually given a new name uh, because of his character. And it's basically this, Barnabas. God had changed him so much so that he became this son of encouragement. Wherever Barnabas went, he was an encouragement. But I think it's amazing that he would go, he would sell this parcel of land, then he would bring the proceeds, and he would lay it at the apostles' feet to be distributed as they saw need in the church of the Lord Jesus. And I don't think a lot of times we think... You know, when we set aside a certain uh, uh, portion of our income, that that's actually a grace that God has given to us, that we might truly invest in the kingdom of God for his eternal glory. And it's absolutely amazing. But this morning we come to chapter number five. And in chapter number five, if you look at the first word that happens to be in the chapter, what's the first word that happens to be in the chapter? Anyone know? Anyone know? Nobody has their Bible open? It's but, isn't it? And but is telling us that it's a contrast. In other words, it's connected to the chapter before. And so here's a contrast in between the giving of Barnabas and others that happen to begin in the church and this other couple that happen to begin Ananias and Sapphira that we meet in the first verse that happen to be right there. It's a contrast in between this great grace that we hear about in in the end of chapter number four. And here it is. This great fear that came over the congregation and over, over the whole community. You know, and here we have this great blessing of God that we read about in chapter number four. And here we read about God's judgment in chapter number five. And we want to ask, what happened? What took place? You know, why this judgment? You know, and one of the reasons why I think we have such a hard time with chapter number five is because we take sin so lightly. In fact, the church takes sin so lightly. You know, it's something, again, that's really not that big of a deal. I mean, who doesn't tell a white lie? Who doesn't fudge the truth here or there? 
You know, and we take sin so lightly that it happens to begin in our life. And a lot of times, even we try to explain it away. You know, when we talk about judgment, when we talk about the fear of God, when we talk about, again, God's wrath, that's something that happens to be again in the Old Testament. If you want to hear about that, you just read the stories that happen to be in the Old Testament. But we live in the New Testament. It's all about grace. It's all about truth that happens to be again right here. So, you know, in light of that, you won't hear many sermons on Acts chapter 5. And that's what I love about what I exposed or you're preaching, because guess what? The next week you're preaching a text that maybe is never preached in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, you'll find a lot of uh, uh, sermons on later on in this chapter about the disciples when they're in prison, that they're let out by the angel again of God from that prison. You'll hear lots of sermons about that and their deliverance. You'll hear lots of sermons about the great grace that fell upon the congregation that we saw in the end of chapter number um, four, but you won't hear many sermons on Acts chapter five, verses one to 11. You know, and the reason why is because we take sin so lightly. And this is why I love history. This is why I love, again, inspired history that happened to be right here, because we get the good, the bad, and the ugly, don't we? We get everything that's part and parcel of our lives, of our um, uh, world that happened to begin around us. You know, and this is inspired history. In other words, I want you to realize this actually took place, this judgment of God. You know, this is not a figment of our imagination, but it actually took place. Just as sure as a death, burial, and resurrection t- t- took place, just as sure as all the events of Pentecost took place, this event right here took place. You know, and we have this inspired document that happens to begin right here. Again, a lot of times all we want to hear about, you know, let's talk about the man who was healed at the gate, beautiful. You know, because Jesus heals us of all our iniquities, of all our pain, of all our sorrows and everything else like that. Let's just hear again a message about that and the application. But there is a message that happens to begin right here that all of us need to hear. And it's basically this. God is a God not to be trifled with. God is a God who hates sin. God is a God who judges sin. And many times, this is the thing we have to realize, many times that judgment before that great grace comes upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that judgment begins in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins again among the people of God. And there's a message that happens to begin right here because we live again in a very visual world that happens to begin around us. And there's a message all the way through this narrative right here. And it's basically this. You cannot hide your sin from God. Isn't it true? I mean, many times we like to pretend that God doesn't exist. God isn't present. God doesn't see this. You know, it was a real call that happened to begin right here to the whole congregation that happened to be in Jerusalem. And it was a real call even as we hear this text that happened to begin right here uh, to confession and repentance. To recognize beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is a grave, our sin has a gravity before this great God. And it's truly a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Now, let me just say this. There's many questions that happen to come in this passage of scripture that people grapple with. One is, were these saved individuals? Were they truly born again Uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or were these individuals, again, gone off into eternal fire and eternal judgment of of God? Were they truly born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, another question that we could ask, again, is uh, how do we reconcile this passage, again, with what we're taught about the love of God? 
You know, uh, why doesn't God strike people down dead like we see in Acts chapter 5 for any sin that happens to begin out there? And those are questions that need to be answered, and we'll try to answer them uh, briefly as we go through through this. And the reason why I say briefly is I don't want us to get away from the main message, right? So often we get in the peculiars, we get on, we look at a little leaf, a little twig that happened to be again on the tree, and we miss the message. And the message is this. Don't dabble in sin. Don't tempt God. Don't trifle with his, hol- his holiness. It is a real fearful thing. And this is where, even as a people of God, we should take sin seriously. And especially, here it is, our own personal sin. And that's what I want us to see. So I want us to really walk through this passage of Scripture. And then I'm going to draw some conclusions that we can make through this passage of scripture. And I hope it will be helpful you know, to each one of us that we will cling to the Lord, that we will truly watch our human hearts because our human hearts are so wicked. They can go off in so many different directions. And this is just uh, one example of them. So what, what I want us to do, um, uh, this is a little longer passage of scripture in verses 1 to 11, but I, I'm going to read through that passage. And what I want you to do, because I think a lot of times when we read scripture, we get in this habit and it's a bad habit. We've got some re- uh, good gentlemen who can really read Scripture well, and I'm thankful for that. But I think a lot of times we just go like this. Isn't that interlude time? You know, we, we've stopped singing, we've stopped praying, or whatever it happened to be, and we go in the interlude. So when we read this, I want you to really think about what is going on in this passage of Scripture. So let's, let's read the opening 11 verses of Acts chapter 5. Beginning of verse number 1, it says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias had heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last breath. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. In an interval of three hours, that's amazing, isn't it? You can imagine Sapphira walking in and everybody looking at her. And you can imagine, again, as everybody's looking at her, she's thinking, man, they're really impressed by the gift I gave. You know, look at them. Look at them right here. And the narrative carries on. In an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to him, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she she, she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And listen to this. And great fear came 
upon the whole church and upon all who heard these sayings. Now think of it, because I think a lot of times when we hear, hear this, this incident, this historical situation, we often feel sorry for Ananias and Sapphira. You know, we often have empathy for them. We often again think, oh man, that, that's really, really too bad. You know, and I think the reason why is because we just do not think this sin is that big of a deal, right? It's just no biggie. I mean, who hasn't lied? Who hasn't fudged the truth? Who hasn't tried to look better in somebody else's eyes by maybe, you know, just, just tweaking the truth here or tweaking the truth to have and begin over there? It's really not that big of a deal. And the judgment seems, again, just to be compounded way over the top. And, and, and there's two things that happen to begin to play here. One is we don't realize the seriousness of sin before a holy God because we don't realize how glorious and how grand God truly is. We don't realize that. Every sin that I commit, we even had this read in Psalm chapter 51 this morning, every sin that I have committed, it's even right here in the text, is first and foremost against God. And the other thing that we don't realize is, is how heinous this sin was, how destructive this sin was. We just don't see it many times because we're not thinking through the text. You know, in verse number one, we see this couple, and we're introduced to this couple. You know, Ananias and Sapphira, and we see that they sold a parcel of land. And no doubt they're looking out at these thousands and thousands of individuals that have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt they have, again, a love, they have an empathy for them, and they decide to sell this piece of the land. And no doubt, probably their intentions to happen to begin at first were, tr- were true, were noble. You know, but we read in verse number two, and this is where they become complicit, both become complicit, but this is where the problem comes. And it says, and with his wife's knowledge, it says he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the problem there, and I want you to see it because we're going to talk about it in a second, is that phrase kept back. You know, I don't think we understand that phrase kept back, so think about it because really when you read it in the English, there doesn't seem to be any problem here. It's their right to keep back. It's their right to give it all. It's their right to only give a portion. It's their right to keep the land and not sell the land. And you know what? Peter even says that. You know, because right here in verse number four, he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but here's the seriousness of it again, but to God. So he says, he said they were under no obligation. You know, they could have sold it and they could have kept all of it. They could have sold it and they could have given a portion of it. They could have again sold it and done whatever they wanted with it. You know, that's not the sin. The sin is in those words in verse number two, and it's this, kept back. Because really the full-orbed meaning of that word doesn't come through in, in the English language. You know, the Greek word that happens to be right there. And I'm going to read another passage of Scripture. And this is what I want you to do. It's over in Titus. And in this passage of Scripture, when you read it, that Greek word appears in it. But it appears in a different way. And I want to to see if you can spot it. Okay? So so I'm going to read it. These are commands that are given to uh, servants as far as how they function before their masters. And it says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, 
not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, here's a question. What's the word kept back? Anyone want to take a shot at it? That's right. It's pilfering. Right? They are not to pilfer that which is not their own from their masters. Right? So think of what is happening here. Because, again, we can see this in verse, in verse number 8. You know, look at what Peter says here. And Peter said to her, <coughs> uh, speak, speaking to Sapphira, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Right? And she said, yes, for so much. In other words, what she's given the impression of. We sold it for this much, and we have given it to the Lord. All of it to the Lord. And look at back at verse number 3, because we see this kept back phrase again. It says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And here's the sin, that they were pilfering from God. They, they, they were basically giving this impression, you know, as they looked at Barnabas, as they looked at others who were doing the same thing, selling property and giving it to the Lord for the needs of the congregation. They were giving the impression before the people of God that they had this kind of commitment, that they had this kind of heart, that they had this kind of love, that they had this kind of loyalty to God. In other words, I want you to understand it. They were playing the hypocrite. They were pretending to be somebody that they're not. And what God was saying, again, in their midst, that this is not something light. He even gives them a chance. Did you sell it? Did you sell it? Did you sell it for this much? Did you sell it for... No, no, we didn't sell it for this much. We kept part of it again for the sell. So it gives them a chance to repent. Neither one of them repent. This is what we sold it for. And there's a message there, isn't it? Because we think we have secret areas that happen to begin in our life. And there's more to the natural and physical world that happen to begin around us. God is always present. Isn't it? He knows about those secret conversations that you're having with your spouse or with your children. He knows about, again, what you happen to be, again, on your screen, whether it happens to be a tablet, whether it happens to be a computer, whether it happens to be, again, a phone screen. He knows what you're doing with it. And here's, and, here's the, and, here, and here's the whole point. God will not be mocked. But he will bring that sin to light. And why? Because he cares for God's people and he truly cares for you. Sin that goes unrepentant will be discovered. And why? Because God is an all-loving, all-holy, all-glorious all grand God. You know, and as you look at that, that should, that should again, just amaze our hearts. Uh, but before I go any further, I want to bring some conclusions. I want, want to really apply this to our lives in a really helpful way. But I want to bring out a theological significance of this passage of Scripture. So if you ever have a systematic theology book and you open it up and you, and you look in the back where the index is and you come to Acts chapter 5, they're all going to be talking about the same theological issue that happens to be in right here. And what it is is the identity of the Holy Spirit of God. You know, when you look at the, 
deity of God the Father, it's easy to see in the book of Acts, isn't it? It's stated over and over and over and over. The Father, the Father God, the Father God, the Father God. God is God. He is Father. And it's easy to see the Lordship of Jesus Christ because he's called what? All over and over and over. Lord, 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 Lord. And when we come to this passage of Scripture, we see both, here it is, the personality, and here it is, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Now, the deity of the Holy Spirit is an easy doctrine. And you know why? Because he's called the Holy Spirit of, begins with a G, God. Right? So it's either talking about God exercising his power, or it's talking about a personality called the Holy Spirit, who is God. So the only thing that we have to really find out is if he has personality. You know, and you see this in this passage of scripture, because in verse number three, it says this, uh, speaking again to Ananias, he says, Satan filled your heart to do this, to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then we see in verse number four, you have not lied to man, but who have you lied to? But to God. Now, let me tell you, can I lie to this pulpit? And the answer is what? No, no. Can I lie to my electricity at home? Can I lie to a generator? You know, you start it up and say, oh, you got lots of gas left. Right? Can you lie to a generator? And the answer is no. Who do you lie to? You lie to someone who has what? Personhood. Right? You have lied. Here it is. To the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit. You have lied to God. And this is an amazing doctrine. I don't, I don't, you know, this is the most unique doctrine. When we call ourselves believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we call ourselves Christian, this is the most unique doctrine that we have of God. You know, this is what says. It says, our God is different than all, every other monotheistic religion. Every, what we mean is monotheos is God, right? Every one God religious system. This is what sets Christianity apart, isn't it? That we have three, and listen to the next word, it's really important, distinct persons in the Godhead. Not three manifestations, right? I might manifest myself as a husband. I might manifest myself as a pastor. And to my mother, I might manifest myself as a son. I'm just one person. I have three manifestations. That's not, not the doctrine. There's three distinct Persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You see this at the baptism of Jesus, don't you? At the baptism of Jesus, Jesus goes down in the water and he doesn't throw his voice up into heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I'm well, well pleased. It's the Father speaking. And then you have the Holy Spirit come upon him. And what do you have? You have three distinct persons, but how many gods? There's not gods, there is God. One being of God, one in essence, one in unity. It is the most unique doctrine that sets our God apart from any other religious system that happens to begin out there. But that's not the main intention of the passage. You know, Peter is taking, he's not teaching a doctrine of the Holy Spirit of God. He is uh, surmising, he is taking for granted that they already know that, that the Holy Spirit is a third person in the triunity of God. What he's teaching is the absolute seriousness of sin before a holy God. 
Now, again, it would be easy to skip over this, right? It would be easy to say, well, all that happens to be, again, recorded in the book of Acts is history, and that is all it is. It's just telling us the history of the church. There's really nothing applicable. There's really nothing here for us. It's just giving us information. But we have to realize why divine, uh, divine history is given. Divine history is given that we might look and we might recognize our hearts in other people. Isn't it true? You know, so when you look at the wilderness wanderings of the Egyptians, why do we have chapter after chapter, book after book of them wandering in the wilderness? Why? And this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning of verse number 6, tells us. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And we see that and we read that. Now, why do we need to know that? Now, these things took place as examples for us that, here's the purpose, we might not desire evil as they did. And that's why the histories are given us, that we might not fall into the same pattern of belief, that we might not believe our wicked human hearts. Oh, it's just different. It's just different with me. It's just different with me. That we would realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is our God and this is who we are. Now, people hate this. They really do. They say, God's not like this. In fact, uh, you can hear some sermons on, a, on it, and I wish it was just some, but you can hear some sermons that happen to begin on this text, and it's basically this, God didn't do this. You know, when Peter came in and he told Ananias, when Ananias was, found out about this, he was so grieved because of his great love for God that he breathed his last breath. He was just overcome with sorrow. When Sapphira heard it because of her again passion for this great God, for Jesus Christ, when she recognized the shame, when she recognized the horror of what she did, she passed on. She just couldn't take it. Her heart failed her. Here's the problem with that. Is the whole congregation didn't see it that way. Right? And how do we know that? Twice we're told. Great fear came on. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if all of a sudden somebody came up here and I asked him about a particular, this is not going to happen. God's word is finished. But can, can you imagine? And all of a sudden I asked them a question about their sin. I said, not me, Pastor. And I said, you have not only lied to men, but more importantly, you have lied to God. And like that, their life was taken up. What do you think you would be thinking of the rest of the day? What do you think you'd be examining? Oh, I hope so-and-so got the message. Right? What do you think? You know, this is a shocking, and it's meant to be, sobering passage of Scripture that we would do well to meditate on and truly seek to learn of. Because, again, the main message is the absolute seriousness of the sin. You can't come out to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and the message is not getting through if you don't see the seriousness of the sin. Right? We read Psalm 51 this morning. Oh, Lord, be merciful. My sin is ever before me. We sang about a merciful God. Why does God need to be merciful before me? How about this one? Why did Jesus have to go? 
We say he's the second person of the triunity of God. Why did he have to, if my sin is not that big of a deal, why did God have to come in human flesh and die such a terrible and such an agonizing death? I mean, the all-inexhaustible worthy one. Why did that have to happen? We sing about the seriousness of sin every single week. And we should realize it. You know, Ananias and Sapphira, what they thought of, what they concentrated on, was reputation. Applause. And their sin, in one word, right? We play for others. We play for others. We don't realize we're in the presence of God. We're in the presence of God. We play for others. We play for others. And their sin, in one word, is hypocrisy. Now, here's a question. Were these truly born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Were these believers, what we would call Christians? You know, were they? And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, when you look at the um, commentaries, the commentaries, again, are pretty split on this. Some say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, these were unsaved individuals. You know, uh, we see that Satan... um, uh, Satan had dwelled again, Ananias. Why have you lied? You've been filled with the spirit, or the, with uh, Satan. It's the same language that's used of uh, Judas. And a lot of people think that these are just emissaries. And what greater way to destroy the power? What greater way to destroy what is going on in the church than to bring his own emissaries into the church and give them some sort of standing? And so a lot of people think that these truly are individuals that are not born-again believers. And when they died that day, they went off into eternal judgment. Now, a lot of the other people think that these were believers who were just duped by their own foolish hearts to follow their sin and that they could get away with their sin. You know, and that's how subtle sin is. Sin is so subtle. Because sin always says this to me, and it says the same message to you. I can handle this. Right? I can really handle this. And we can't handle that, that trial. We cannot handle where it takes us. And sin always does this. It's really, really subtle because there's many good things that happen to begin in our life. Right? And here's a good thing. No doubt they saw a need that happened to begin in the church. And no doubt, again, they even talked about it with them. We, well, we could sell the land, but we need this much in order to survive, in order to pay our bills, in order to, for a daily living. So let's keep this much back, but let's give this because we truly love Christ. And we want to give an example of his saving grace in our life, his great sacrifice. And we realize that there is a need that happened to be out there. And no doubt. You know, they could have looked at that and really, really wanted to be a blessing to others. But you know what we do in our heart? We fool around with those blessings. Isn't it true? You know, I wonder how people are going to look at me after I give that blessing. You know, that portion of an income. I wonder if all of a sudden, if we gave it all, if people would look at us differently. I wonder if the apostles will give us a different name. They gave Joseph a different name. I wonder how people would look at us. Would they think we're holy? Would, we th- would they think they're all righteous? And here's the thing. When's a good thing become a bad thing? And here's the answer. When it becomes a ruling thing in our life. Even 
giving that you might help others. That's how subtle sin is. Now, whether these individuals were saved or whether they're not saved, there's no way to to tell in the passage of Scripture. But here's here's the message that happens to be in the passage of Scripture. Sin is serious business before our holy God. God will not be mocked. You know, he calls us to repentance. He calls us, again, to confession before us. And if we don't, again, he will confess it. He will bring some sort of consequence on our life to make it evident that change needs to take place. You know, the other thing that I find really amazing in here is the subtlety of Satan. Not only the subtlety of sin in our own hearts, but the subtlety, again, of Satan. Have you ever thought about how subtle he is? I mean, what's the best way to destroy a church that's praising and glorifying God and even reaching their communities that haven't speaking around them? What's the best way? And if we look through the book of Acts, one of the ways that our world chooses many times is to pass laws, right? Is to make it to be harder to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is to persecute, is to imprison is to execute. But you know what happens so often in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition? What happens? One is the church is purified, and what happens? The church grows. So I'm going to ask a question. What is the most efficient way that you can destroy a church? And here it is, from the inside out, that it might implode upon itself. That it might be full of people who are play-acting, but really do not love Christ and therefore do not love one another. You know, that are not committed to him. You know, think of the subtlety even in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8 because it says, be sober, be sober-minded. In other words, again, uh, be watchful, right? Be sober-minded. Have your mind alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. What? Seeking someone to devour. Now, here's a question. How does... He devours us. How does he devour us? And he devours us by making something else than Jesus Christ preeminent in our life, right? Right here it is. We want Christ to be glorified. We want his saints to be edified. We want people to be encouraged and keep following the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to sell this land, and all of a sudden, here it is. We take our eyes off Jesus and imagine the reputation. Imagine the stature. Imagine the standing we are going to have before God's people. And think of it. This is a young church, right? And this is the only church. It's probably two months old at this time. You know, this is the only church that exists. And certainly, again, it's a sizable church, but this is the only church that exists. Imagine if this sin, there's no consequence to this sin, but this sin is found out in two months. What happens? Everybody starts questioning everybody else's motives. Isn't true? I wonder if that guy sold. I wonder if this guy, Joe, I don't know why we call him Barnabas. I wonder if he really sold and gave the full price. Yeah, 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 I know that person did that kind act for me. But I wonder if he just did that kind act that he might have standing in my sight. And all of a sudden, everyone starts questioning everyone else. Right? There's not this, think of this. We're looking this way, and there's not this great power, this great grace, because of this great Christ and what he's done in our lives. And here's the danger. The danger is, 
I can come out on Sunday, and I can stand up in here, and I can sing, Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. My chains have fell off. I now am free. Praise my God. Praise my Jesus forevermore. And I can play a Sunday self and be a different person from Monday to Saturday. And here's the amazing thing that I have in the beginning about this text, because it's telling us, don't follow Satan. Don't pretend that you are someone you are not. Don't play for appearances. Don't play for the, for the praise of men. Right? There's only one audience. And ultimately, it is this great God that happens to be again in heaven. I mean, it screams in this text that God is an absolute holy God. Now, think of it. If we would say, let me just get a drink here. If we would say, what is the foremost attribute of God? What's the one that the angels sing about? What's the one that's announced uh, three times in the word of God? I think all of us who happen to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would get that answer really quickly because we realize it's holy, 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 right? The holiness of God. Now, holiness is just basically this. God's absolute, complete otherness that causes him to be majestic and causes him worthy to be praised. And here he is. Here's here's everything else. Everything else is in creation. Everything else, again, is here. But God, in his worth, in his majesty, in his glory, is completely other than everything else. You know, and that's who God is. And he's the same God that happens to be of the Old Testament, New Testament, because we hear this all the time. Well, we've evolved as far as our looking at God. That was the God of judgment, the God of wrath, the God of fury that happened to begin of the Old Testament. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 16 speaks of God this, whole, this way, who alone has immortality, who dwells in what unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Nobody, no one in their uncleanness can ever come in the presence of God with not being consumed by this unapproachable holiness of God. That's who God is. Now, think of it. Because here's a big, big question. Why doesn't God act this way today? Why doesn't God, in his holiness, strike me down when I play the hypocrite? Why doesn't God strike me down when I try to give a false appearance? Why? And let me just preface this very strongly. God has every right to. He does. He has every right to strike me down and judge me in that moment. That's how great my sin is. You know, and I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, God judges many times the people of God more than we realize. You know, he's the one who controls history. He's the one of all of a sudden, you know, there's going to be something left, left, left open on a laptop. There's going to be somebody at a particular place at a particular time that will see something and something will be revealed. 
you know, there's going to be somebody who's going to drop a piece of paper and somebody else is going to pick it up, and they're not going to be nosy. They're just going to say, oh, is this important? And they'll read it. And all of a sudden, somebody's sin is exposed. All of a sudden, there's consequences, again, to those actions. And I think, again, more often than not, God exposes sin a lot more and brings consequences, again, of that sin way more than we ever think. But one of the reasons why God doesn't bring my sin, even as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, against me is because of his wonderful patience. You know, we read this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. God is an absolute patient God. But here's the thing we have to be careful of. I cannot count on God being patient when I live with known unrepentant sin in my life saying, oh, I will repent. I'll get my heart right tomorrow. I'll get my heart right somewhere down the road. I cannot count on the patience of God. Sin is never to be trifled with. God is never to be trifled with. Where he should never assume that he's obligated to show us the same grace that he's shown us in the past. The message is don't dishonor the worth and glory of the sacrifice of Christ. Don't act as if God does not know your secret life or does not exist at all. Don't play the hypocrite, but celebrate all that Jesus is for us. And it's great. Forgiveness. Let me just close this morning by reading a, a, um, a reading of what Derek Thomas again wrote about this passage of Scripture. Let me just read this and then we'll pray. It says, does a God of Acts 5 strike fear into your hearts? It did these early Christians. Don't you think that when they went to bed that night, they were trembling a little at what God had done? If they slept at all, they rose next day with a determination that they were not going to waste their lives. The business of being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, is a serious one. As you read this passage about judgment, about the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, does it make you tremble? It should. It is a call to us to be serious about our faith. We need to walk before God in godly fear all of our lives. Let's bow for a moment of prayer. As every head is bowed uh, this morning, as every eye is closed, let me just ask you a few questions. What's in your life this morning? What ongoing sin that you know about And maybe nobody else knows about. You know, because there is somebody who knows. And it's this glorious God that happened to be again above. And what is God going to do out of his love to take you to that point of repentance? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. Lord, we sing about your grace 
And too often, Lord, we bank on your grace. Lord, that we would deserve certain favors, that we deserve a certain um, uh, leniency that happens to begin in our life. And we realize, Lord, that you are king. You are author. You are ruler. Lord, you are the one who knows even what's best for your people and even best for us personally. And I just pray, Lord, that through the preaching of your word that this might be one of the consequences and maybe even the only consequences on many of the private sins that might be in this room this morning. Lord, that people would turn, that people would cleave to Christ, that people again would recognize his glory and his greatness. God, help us not to be like Ananias and Sapphira. Lord, help us to live with a determination, with a motive, Lord, to glorify you, such as Joseph, who became Barnabas. We thank you so much, Lord. Just be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.